My name is Deandra Poe, and I am the founder of Glass Soldier, a duty-bound and data-driven nonprofit dedicated to the elimination of sexual assault in the U.S. Armed Forces. In this podcast, we will explore the pervasive culture of military sexual trauma and how we, as a collective, can change it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I know last week I was off, but here I am in episode five. And for those of you taking notes, as I like to say, this episode is called You Do See Color. So I know in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of conversation about race, especially with the recent coverage of anti-Asian crime rates spiking. And the reason why I say coverage is because it's, it's nothing new. I think, I believe that most people are well aware that, you know, anti-Asian crime, (laughs) anti-black crime, anti-Muslim crime, anti-trans crime is not something new. We just have access to it and people are filming it. And I think with a lot of things that were before that are coming to light now is just about our access to information. So access gives people knowledge and sometimes it can be a bad thing. Sometimes it can empower people to know that they're not the only people going through something. And at the same time, it opens the eyes of other people. So there's this incredible shift or power struggle here with us having access to so much information at rapid speed. So in my thoughts today, just wanting to talk about color as a black woman (laughs) uh, and my friends and my family know that, you know, when we're out in public, it's it's, it's not something you can hide, you know, the color of my skin, the way that I wear my hair, you know, my mannerisms, anything that's as a person of color, it's not something that you can hide. So I just want to talk about this and how in the world is this related to sexual assault and our whole goal of eliminating sexual assault in the military and what does race have to do with it? Well, my friend, I'm glad you asked. So In terms of minorities and representation in the military, again, I'm probably not giving anyone brand new facts, but I may be opening the eyes to someone else who doesn't have access to this information. Today, if you've got an iPhone or an Android, I'm team iPhone, you have the ability to Google anything. But for those who don't, and they may be listening, just giving you some brief statistics on the military. 31% of the military is black. 31% are people of color. So let me correct myself. 31%. Now this is the statistic from 2018. So mind you, we're just brand new to 2021. Um, And you have to pardon me. The reason why I was out last week is because I'm suddenly allergic to Maryland. Anyway, I 31% uh, is including 
Asian and other races. So Asian American, uh, Alaskan Native, Pacific Islander, those are all included in that 31%. Because if anyone was paying attention to a lot of the conversation around the anti-Asian issues, they were saying that they are counted statistically insignificant, meaning that their numbers are so low in some areas of study and focus that they barely register. And I think one of the statistics I was looking at, it was like 0.005. And I think that's a little down further, but either way, statistically insignificant in terms of how they count Asian Americans in the military, even though they've made tremendous contributions to uh, our service to our country. With that being said, 16% Latino, Latinx in the military. Fifth, and yet for females, you know, you and this is including male and female. So when you start to break it down even more, you can understand why it gets a little bit, the, the waters get a little bit more murky. And I wanted to look at like statistics and I was thinking to myself in the male dominated industries, how are those numbers compared to the military? Well, I'm in the military. It's a little bit, a little bit better when it's in terms of how much or percentage people of color make up in male dominant industries. But again, I wanted to look. So I looked up police officers, um, hot topic. So 67% of police officers are white. 12.4% are black. And overall, 15% of our police force are female. And this was one of those situations where, again, Asians were statistically insignificant because they only made up about 1% of police officers. And this was, again, combining everything that comes in the AAPI community, the Asian, the Asian American Pacific Islander community. So I looked at firefighters who I have a ton of love for because they come from a firefighter background. (laughs) Sorry, the sniffing. (laughs) Anyway, firefighters, 79% white. And it was interesting because on the firefighter side, they put 79% white non-Hispanic. And this is the only group that broke it out like this, but 7.8% white Hispanic, which means that a person identifies as white with Hispanic heritage. So I found it interesting that they would verbalize it or write it this way. No other, the military doesn't do it this way. The police didn't do it this way. But firefighters, for some reason, I guess it was statistically statistically significant for them to put it this way with black people coming in next and then all other races kind of being lumped together. Again, not statistically significant enough to put a number out there. I would have to dive a little bit more and do some more research to understand that. With either way, going forward, male dominant, 4.8% female. I understand firefighting is hard. It is uh, typically looked at as a strength-based type of job. Um, Fire hoses are heavy. I 
was afforded the opportunity when I was at Fort Stewart, Georgia, to be attached into some soldiers that were doing firefight were firefighters. And it was amazing. My grandfather was a firefighter, my brother, volunteer firefighters. So firefighting was, like I said, all around me. So when I had the opportunity, I was at Fort Stewart to suit up. It was amazing. It just, <laughs> I understood and I still do understand how incredibly difficult and how adrenaline inducing that job can be and exhausting. I'm four foot 11 on a good day. All of like 125, 30 pounds when I was at Fort Stewart. Because <laughs> I say back then, 125 pounds, four foot 10. And one of the soldiers, the smallest soldier they could find who was so bigger than me was like, yeah, ma'am, you can put on my suit after he had been in it. Oh man, like pre-COVID, that was not a thing. And I certainly just stepped into this like already worn, (laughs) already like, I don't even know if it was sweaty. I'm just giving you guys a visualization here. Stepped inside this heavy suit. I was ready to go, got my own mask and everything. We're going into the building. I, you know, I went through the routine a few times with them, you know, gestures and how we're to hold each other going in and putting out the fire. Again, it was amazing. I just wanted to sidestep the conversation for a second and just talk about how, you know, that tied in. But again, just giving you guys a visualization, it was it was important for me uh, as a soldier back then to just understand where, you know, all the moving pieces was and understanding what my soldiers were doing. So I didn't hesitate to jump in and learn about what they were doing. So here I am, you know, out and I still want to understand and learn from every perspective in a male dominant industry, what it's like for females to have to step into those shoes and put on that suit and do what they do. How does the female mind get into, I'm stepping into a male dominant industry. There are going to be some hurdles and some things that I'm going to have to overcome. And how saying, I don't see your color. I don't see your gender can be, can be damaging. So, That's why I was kind of giving you all those stats and I wanted to set the tone for you to understand that, especially now, now people want to be seen to say, I see you. So how am I going to tie this all into what we're trying to do in our fight to eliminate sexual assault? Well, I also want to tell another story. I think the last episode or previously I've talked about the Me Too movement and everything that happened with Harvey Weinstein in Hollywood. But there were two particular actresses that came forward that Harvey Weinstein publicly said something about, and that was Lupita and Selma. So why is that important? Well, I remember seeing an Uh, when Selma was talking about coming forward or, you know, speaking her truth, how she pointed out that he specifically came for her 
and Lupita and why. She said it was easier to discredit them as women of color and their stories. You know, fast forward, transferring this into the military. Why is that important? Well, I think we have a Lupita and a Selma ourselves when it comes to military sexual assault. And we have Lavinia and Vanessa and their stories and how it's so easy to discredit women of color when they come forward. I remember when Vanessa's story was being told and her family was seeing that she was being harassed, um, possibly assaulted and the story coming out that that wasn't true and they couldn't find anything about it. But she may have said or text or send some information to her family. And if anyone's familiar with Lavinia Johnson, she was deployed. Her body was burned. There was significant damage done to her body. And they said that this was like suicide. It's a little difficult, but again, you have a black woman and a Hispanic woman who, whose family has been fighting for them to, you know, to, to tell their truth and their story about how sexual assault played a part in their murders. So when I hear people say, I don't see color today in 2021, people still seeing that. And I think that the conversation and the narrative has changed a little bit. People that used to say it no longer say it and are being educated. But I think that people are still out there. I know I have personally been in meetings and I've listened into conferences, Zoom meetings, where I hear leaders still say the same thing, this narrative of I don't see color or that's not, you know, how I present myself. Well, if you're the only black woman in a room full of leaders, do not fool yourself and think that they don't see your color and they don't see your gender. It's not something you can remove. Conscious bias is not something that you, the individual, can control. I cannot control someone's unconscious bias towards me. What I can do them is educate them and then do my job efficiently. I can you know, work hard to be, you know, to do the job that I've been hired to do or be the leader that they are expecting me to be. But to say that they don't see my color or that I don't go in there and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a black woman or, you know, I'm, I'm a female period to me is just, it's, it's backwards and it's, just, it's taking us backwards because they see it. It's, it's the elephant in the room. And you, I think we've all had that conversation. Let's, let's acknowledge the elephant in the room. No, we don't need to make a big deal out of it when, you know, we're having a meeting everyday conversations or anything like that. But when we start to have conversations about diversity, when we start to have conversations about why there are issues with this unit or this platoon, or why does this one seem to have more assaults than any other unit, if you're paying attention from that type of level to look down. Are you looking down to wonder why? What does the diversity look like in that unit? Who are these assaults happening to? 
uh, that's a whole nother topic as well. But I want, (laughs) I just want to point out that trying to diminish your color and diminish your gender does not push, does not help anyone in terms of us moving forward and making room for more people of color and more women in leadership positions. It doesn't recognize me, see me for who I am. So again, for me, it's harmful that non-people of color say, I don't see color, but there's an educational opportunity, but it's even more harmful when people of color say it because it leaves a way for excuses. When you when we think about all the firsts that we have, you know, lately there's been a lot of, um, if you go on LinkedIn or even, I got a sneeze brewing, sorry. When you go on LinkedIn or even the news and you turn this on and we're still having firsts, the, the first African-American to head up the United Negro College Fund shocked a lot of people. And we're still like, it's 2021 50 years past, you know, civil rights, so forth and so on. And we're still having significant first in a lot of places. The Marines, excuse me, first females, you know, becoming, you know, or drill sergeants, first females, black females, so forth and so on. In order to recognize that someone is the first to do anything, you have to recognize that their gender, their race, it is usually the topic of why they are being highlighted in the first place. So to walk into a room of leaders and talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and to say something so damaging as, you know, I don't allow my, my gender or my race to play a part in mentorship or uh, how I go into a room and lead. You may not recognize it, but the people on the other side of that table do your subordinates underneath of you and your leaders do. Again, I'm not saying that every time that you step out in front of formation or if you're a firefighter or you're a police officer, that that has to be an announcement. But when you are trying to implement change, when you are having conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, it should be brought up, address the elephant in the room to include why there's so many more men in this room versus women and how you're going to be able to change that. So that's my soapbox about um, why I feel it's so damaging for people of color to, to leave it. It gives way for them to say, we're doing just fine with the one black woman that we have. Um, It definitely gives way for microaggressions because if they don't know, they don't know. And again, there's an educational piece. Microaggressions are a thing. Microsexual assault aggressions are not. There's no such thing. But again, I'm going to tie those two things together as well. So a lot of people know that microaggressions are usually some things that people say to people of color or to a minority because of stereotypes or because of stigma, you know, asking someone who doesn't. Oh, and I'm using quotes, American, you know, 
where they're from uh, or asking a black person about their hair. Those are like microaggressions, but we still have to look at the intent. And I say this to a lot of people that I've been around is the intent to try to embarrass you or is the intent for them to naturally want to understand and to educate themselves? Give me an opportunity to understand how do you lock your hair? What's that process like? Or, and not, can I touch your hair conversation? That's completely different. But is someone genuinely genuinely asking you these questions about your heritage, your ethnicity, your background, because they want to learn? Or is it in a, in a platform where they're trying to embarrass you or, you know, you're out in the open? So take a step back when, you know, when someone asks a question like that, but it's still a thing. Microaggressions are a thing. Microsexual assault aggressions are not. That's just called sexual harassment. And here's how I'm tying the two things in. Because small infractions like inappropriate jokes, allowing someone to get away with sexual harassment, pushing someone for a date or something like that, those statistically have escalated into assault. It's called the continuum of harm theory. And the continuum of harm theory basically posits that small infractions left unchecked lead to larger ones. We know that statistically that people that have been assaulted were harassed first. So nothing was done. The elephant in the room wasn't addressed. As leaders, we have to check every single thing. And I know you're like, I'm not about to, you know, give an article 15 for a soldier who said a, you know, that's what she said joke. Should you though? Or what should you do? Because if you allow that to slide, then the other jokes come along and they just keep building. But you don't know what that's doing to the female soldier on the other end that hears that. It does need to be checked every single situation because as leaders, you set the tone, the environment, the permissive environment for sexual assault to thrive. And the foundation of assault is harassment. Small infractions that keep building up. It is the same in the domestic violence world. When we talk about domestic violence, just briefly going off into a small tangent, it's the same thing. It's built up. Most men don't just come out and punch you right in the face. They test you. They poke at you to see how far they can go. They groom you. And it's the same in the predatory nature of assault. Small infractions. How much is my leader going allow, to allow me to get away with? What can I say or do that's small that I can probably apologize my way out of, but work my way up to, especially when it's about power and control? Those things have to be addressed. So... I don't want to keep sniffing and seize, uh, or sneeze into uh, everyone's ear here. But I think this week was 
such a powerful week in opening up the conversations about race. And my hope is that, you know, as this year goes on, as we have access to more information, that people will open up the conversations to have a conversation with someone of Asian American Pacific Islander descent that they never had before. I mean, the conversation around race period has just been inflammatory in terms of sparking conversations, sparking relationships. My daughter has been studying Asian culture now since she was in high school. And it's a part of, you know, something that she's very passionate about bridging that gap. I remember when she was in school, when she was learning to sing, excuse me, she was learning to sing. She was saying that how she wanted to go over there and be able to, to sing in uh, Korean. And that, you know, that, that gap between a black person speaking Korean and just being over there, it's not something that's heard of. And you still don't hear, you know, a lot about it. I've seen some YouTube videos and I've been watching a few YouTube videos where you'll see someone who's, you know, non-Asian or of Asian descent speaking their language. But I see the, the, the smile on their face as well when they realize that someone is speaking in their native tongue, even though they're here in America. And I think there's an appreciation there of someone taking the opportunity to, to learn something, learn something about someone else outside of your bubble and just recognizing them. I think it's, it's an incredibly powerful thing. When I watch these videos, what I see is someone saying, you see me, you know who I am, you know, not, you know, American or Asian or anything, just my heritage, just my background. This is a part of me to be seen is to me, a very um, powerful tool in the healing process, in the educational process, in the going forward process to be seen. And I think that's what most people want is to be seen, including people that are victims of assault when they walk in their truth to be seen and recognized. So, I hope you all have an incredible week. I hope that the next time that you talk to me, I do not <laughs> sound like I have a frog in my throat and be good. Do good. Be good. Be good.